This is Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The Southwest Florida Symphony is Lee County's only professional orchestra and one of the longest-running orchestras in the Sunshine State. Now, the Southwest Florida Symphony's current 60-second season continues this coming Saturday with the second performance of its Masterworks series featuring multi-award-winning Cuban-American cellist Thomas Mesa performing Dvorak's Cello Concerto in B minor. This concert program also includes a piece by American composer and violinist Jesse Montgomery, whose works tend to contain a compositional focus on improvisation and concepts like language and social justice. And there's a link between Montgomery and Mesa, as her or commissioned work, Divided, was commissioned by the Sphinx organization, Carnegie Hall, and Miami's New World Symphony with Mesa in mind. The program will close with a performance of Edward Elgar's celebrated Enigma Variations, the composition of which has quite a story behind it as well. The second performance of Southwest Florida Symphony's Masterworks series will take place Saturday, March 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Barbara B. Mann Performing Arts Hall in Fort Myers. And joining me now for a closer look is the Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra's maestro and artistic and music director Radu Papanyu. Welcome back. It's so good to be back. Thank you so much for having us again. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to these conversations. Excellent. We're also joined by the Southwest Florida Symphony's Community Outreach Ambassador, Robert Van Winkle. He and Radu also host the organization's podcast, cleverly titled Sharp Listening. Robert Van Winkle, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition. Always great to have you in and studio. And John, thank you so much. We're really looking forward to this. And thanks for the little shout out about the podcast. That Absolutely. Was, that was actually Radu's idea to sh- call it Sharp Listening. I, I thought about it for a while, and really the idea behind it is, uh, is that if you listen to the episode, and we have one dedicated to every single Masterworks performing uh, performance coming up, if you listen to the episode before, you will get more insight, and the listening experience when you get to the concert will be enhanced. So excellent, sharp excellent. Listening. And credit where credit's due. <laughs> well, to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook, we're at WGCU Public Media, or on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So let's just start by talking about this amazing cellist, Thomas Mesa, solo with major orchestras all over. Um, bringing him here to perform with the Southwest Florida Symphony is quite a get. I'm, I'm curious about how this came about, because, uh, Radu, I, I know that the two of you met years ago through this uh, uh, conservancy program up in Vermont, and you had shared some details about really remembering the actual meeting, or, you know, around a fireside playing cards. So I'm curious about how much of getting somebody like him here is about leveraging those personal connections, or is it really just a matter of is it going to fit with this soloist demanding schedule, or maybe some combination of the two? Well, I have to be to be honest. In many cases, it is exactly what you're saying because you have a relationship with someone, you really appreciate their work, and therefore you would like to collaborate with them. But I have to say, when I was appointed, uh, he was already booked for this particular concert. So serendipity. Yeah. So credit has to go to our executive director, Amy Ginsburg, and uh, our. Uh, also our general manager, Nora Lustred, uh, the two of them had contacted him. And it was such a pleasant surprise because, uh, as you mentioned, we we met, uh, we were in Stowe, Vermont when we, we met. We were both participants in the Perlman Music Program. And this was a chamber music residency. And we both performed in a concert there. And indeed, I remember we were playing card games uh, close to a, to a fire. And it would be just so great to be musically reacquainted. 
Right, right. And I may have mentioned this in a past conversation, but Strings Magazine had dubbed Mesa the accidental cellist, mm-hmm. um, both because he started playing at the age of 12, which is quite late for somebody of his virtuosity and caliber. But also the whole thing was an accident. He was interested in percussion, but his middle school, um, he had accidentally signed up for band instead of orchestra. And then luckily for all of our benefit, the middle school administrators wouldn't let him switch. And so cello it was. Can you imagine a background like that? It was a complete accident that this virtuoso now uh, is where he is, but he he didn't really want to do that. He wanted to play drums instead. Yeah. <laughs> so, amazing. But I, I love what you said because it is a little bit unusual that he started at age 12. Yeah. And usually when you think a lot of the virtuosos, you hear them these stories that they started age 13. Three, four, or five, which mm-hmm. also sounds very, very early. But I have to say that there have been numerous exceptions of people starting later around 12, 13, uh, even 14 that have become extremely successful. So I want to encourage everybody listening, if you're very young, but you're, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, or re- literally any age, it's never really too late to pick it up. Good point. Good point. And uh, he's going to be performing the Dvorak Cello Concerto, um, I think probably... It goes without saying, one of the greatest cello concertos in the genre. And and it was one of the, I think it was the last concerto Dvorak actually wrote. He died about 10 years later. Would it be fair to say that this is a piece where the technical ability of the soloist is on full display? Absolutely. And it's part it's part of the purpose of a, of a concerto to just showcase uh, the soloist and showcase what is really possible on the instrument. And Dvorak is really up there. It's extraordinary. Uh, demanding technically and also just if we look at the length of of the work it's really a major it's a it's a big concerto the stamina that it takes to play the whole uh, the whole piece is just extraordinary and, and Rondo, is this piece particularly demanding on the orchestra itself? I mean, the concertmaster has this great solo towards the end there's a horn solo um I feel like individual orchestra members are featured maybe more than you would hear in a typical piece like this? I would say that is absolutely correct. And I really, I personally think of it uh, as a symphony, a concertante. And there have been some examples in the past of composers naming their their, their concerto symphony, a concertante. But the idea is that the orchestra has an almost equal, if not equal, just absolutely essential role. And I mean, the first clue of that is when you look at the first movement. I mean, the you know the cellist comes on stage, takes a takes a bow, and it's true. The soloist does not play for the first four minutes and a half, wow. and that's how long the orchestral introduction is. There's so much material uh, there. It's almost you, you get almost a full exposition of a of a of a symphony, and indeed, there's a huge horn solo. It's uh, the second theme is being introduced as a as a horn solo, and the whole work is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I, I also found it interesting, just the story to how we even got this composition. Dvorak had begun writing a cello concerto some three decades earlier, never finished it, and I read that he kind of. He didn't want to do a cello concerto. He thought the cello was a fine orchestral instrument, but was just wholly insufficient when it came to, you know, being featured as a soloist. And and I have to say, as someone who grew up on the cello, I have to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you Um, do. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's just so interesting that now we have this piece and it's such a mainstay of the cello repertoire. 
did you kind of find it interesting that the, the path that Dvorak sort of took towards this and that he hadn't really written anything with the cello solo and then one of his last pieces was this? Yes, and I, I think there are a few important reasons of why of why that happened. First of all, there were a number of influences. He, he was no stranger to the United States. Yes. He, he had moved... Uh, at the invitation, he had moved to New York at the invitation to be the director of the National Conservatory in New York, a position he held for a few years. And while in New York, he heard the premiere of a Victor Herbert cello concerto. And that had a big impact uh, on him because he saw in a way what was possible. And the other thing that I think was absolutely essential, we have to realize he was later in his life as a composer uh, he had a lot of experience. He really knew how to use the orchestra and what every what was possible with every single combination of an, of orchestral texture. Really, if we are to look at it that way, so he really knew how to balance the orchestra with the cello, and it was really in a way. Now he really knew what was possible, and he was ready for it. And the result is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also found it interesting that this cello concerto, as you mentioned, was written during you know Dvorak's time in the United States, and it was kind of written around the same time as as other pieces he's known for, like um, New World Symphony, the American String Quartet, and the influence. The American cultural influence is evident in those pieces, but not so much with this cello concerto. Do you have any insight on why that might be the case? Well, it's it's always an interesting uh, topic of conversation. I think Dvorak loved being in the United States and enjoyed his time here. But if you read some uh, some of uh, his letters and and things of that nature, he was always dreaming of being back in in, in Bohemia. He he loved what we call today uh, Czech Republic, and it was such a rich tradition that he was so ingrained into. And I think we get a lot of that in the cello concerto, particularly when you look at the beginning of the of the third uh, movement. It was also, when you look at his compositional output, I think it's fairly fair to say that there was the medium that he was, in a way, most, most comfortable in. And it was also the medium that made him famous to begin with, because at Brahms, we all know that at Brahms's recommendation, mm-hmm. he wrote two sets of Slavonic dances, Slavonic which dances, were yes. extraordinarily successful and made him really, really popular as a composer, not just in a, what we know today as Czech Republic, but also all over the world. Really, so I think it was this idea that yes, he was in the United States, but a little bit with the cello concerto, he was thinking back of his homeland and dreaming of a day when he would be back. Yeah, the Slavonic dances are so fun to play. Um, there's this interesting connection between Mesa, our cello soloist, and the composer of the first piece on Saturday's program, Jesse Montgomery. Um, Robert, did you want to tell us a little about that? Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to, the, to hearing this piece. Uh, first of all, uh, you can find very little, if any, recording of it around. So mm. it's, a, it's a piece that is going to be new for a lot of people. And uh, the reviews are, are wonderful on it. It sounds like it's uh, going to be a terrific piece piece of music. Um, she is really involved with the Sphinx organization, which I've really uh, 
enjoyed researching and, and finding out more about. They're dedicated to the support and the education of Afri- African-American and Latinx string players. And that's that's something that's really put out some amazing musicians, Jesse and, and Thomas Mesa as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was that... Oh, go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to add that uh, the two collaborated as well, and she has written a cello concerto for Tommy Mesa, which we will not be performing this Saturday, but we really hope to do it. Uh, sometime in the near future. Here's here's the quote I was looking for. Somebody uh, once uh, said about her overture, it's turbulent, wildly colorful, and exploding with life. So that sounds like a piece of music everybody should hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is I mean, was, was that connection sort of what you had in mind when setting up the program for this concert? Or, or, or was that just part of your formula? Because I notice you do tend to like to include you know, a contemporary piece for maybe a lesser known or, or a female composer, pieces who, as Robert was saying, don't get heard all that often. Yes, and also I was already familiar with her music. I have uh, co- I have conducted some of her compositions, oh, okay. and I always just enjoyed them so much. And I think really what she does so brilliantly, she's able to combine a number of, of, of different elements, and it can be different elements from different cultures too because you're looking at jazz textures, you have Baroque, rhythms, you have all sorts of uh, classic harmonies which are combined with newer harmonies and it's just uh, she she's able to mix these things in a way that's just very very successful and interesting it's just something new to hear but done extraordinarily well. Yeah, great to hear her experiences, you know, as a black woman growing up in New York in the 80s and, and bringing that into it as well as, you know, pieces like Divided that really do just kind of resonate with our current moment, the isolation of, you know, the, the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the, the political divisions that persist today. So that's really interesting to me as well. Well, if you're just joining the show, we're getting a preview of the Southwest Florida Symphony's upcoming Masterworks concert featuring cellist Thomas Mesa in a conversation with the organization's community outreach ambassador, Robert Manwinkle, as well as our maestro and conductor, Radu Papanyu. If you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, again, find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So Saturday's concert is going to conclude with uh, Edward Elgar's well-known Enigma Variations. This was written kind of around the same time as the Dvorak Cello Concerto, 1898, so just a few years later. Um, can you tell me about why you wanted to include this piece in uh, Saturday's performance? Well, I, I like to have programs that are uh, extremely varied, and indeed the two of them are, are pretty close when you look uh, at the, the time they were written. They're really just about four years uh, yeah. apart. But I have to say I, I love the Enigma variations. I've always absolutely loved it. I know it's extremely popular, and it was also my graduation piece when I graduated from the New England Conservatory. This is what I got to conduct, and it was a choice back then. So I thought for my first season with the South of Florida uh, Symphony, I would I, I just really wanted to do it uh, again. I, I think that's so interesting because Radu's graduation piece was the Enigma Variations, but everybody else in the world is pomp and circumstance, which right. <laughs> also what Elgar wrote. So, <laughs> so there is a connection. But that's true. I, I think if you have not heard, if you're listening, you have not heard the Enigma Variations, you've definitely heard a piece by Elgar, and that is it's what we know as the graduation song, and it's it's in the middle of pomp or circumstance dance number one. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, can you give us maybe a little bit of a primer on the structure of Enigma Variations for the uninitiated? 
Yes, I mean it's it's a very very interesting story how it how it came to be. Basically, when you're looking at a theme and variations, you have a theme, and then, as the title suggests, you're varying every variation is you're doing something different uh, with the theme, and you can take it uh, in a different key. You can completely change the rhythm. You can bring a counter melody, which is a melody that works on top or below uh, the melody. So it's really a really really fun game for composers because. Uh, Every variation, there's a different opportunity. What am I going to do? What instruments am I going to use? What is the rhythm going to be? What is the key going to be? It's almost like a fun puzzle that you're, you're, you're trying to solve at all times. But the story here is that uh, one day, Elgar, after a long day of teaching violin, I believe, uh, gets home. He's very, very tired. He gets a cigar out. He sits at the piano, and he starts improvising, which apparently he used to do uh, quite a bit. He had this ability. He would just sit down and make something up on the spot. And uh, his wife, Alice, at some point walks in and she says, well, what is that? And apparently his answer was, well, it's nothing at the moment, but something could be made of it. And he kept playing. And at some point he called Alex back into the room. Uh, what does this remind you of? Someone in particular. And she says, oh, it sounds just like him. So he was trying to portray one of their friends, a character through music and then the whole piece became really this game where every variation is describing either one of his friends or an acquaintance or some sort of event or place that's related to one of his friends. Yeah, musical sketches. Exactly, sure, sure. exactly. And of course, you know, Elgar was famously um, interested in ciphers and puzzles. So there's something a little deeper in here as well, maybe. Um, <laughs> like there's a hidden variation or or maybe I, I've also heard uh, possible theories that it was just something he made up to keep people interested. The early marketing <laughs> techniques of yeah. making your music popular. Right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, the quote is that uh, Elgar says, the enigma I will not explain. It's dark saying must be left unguessed. Mm. So he's just trying to – obviously the only people that knew if or what the enigma was are long gone and that would have been – Elgar and Alice and possibly his friend um, uh, Jaeger. Right. right, but I, I guess when, when you look at he he tells us that, yes, there is an enigma, which he's also not really willing to to solve for anybody. And the idea is he was very specific. He said there, there is a melody, a line that you could put on top of the actual theme and this particular line is very, very famous that anybody would recognize, and it works perfectly with what we call the theme of the piece. So there has there have been all sorts of theories. Anything that any theory that was given during Elgar's lifetime, he he has basically denied it. He has said that is not uh, the the answer. And indeed, as Robert was saying, I guess. One logical conclusion would be to think, well, is there really an enigma or is this just a wonderful technique to make us think that there is uh, something there? And it's a, it's a great publicity uh, tactic. But the other thing that I always love to say, it's, and I cannot take full credit for this because I have heard it somewhere, undeniably there is one theme that's connecting uh, the whole piece together. And because every single variation is dedicated to one of his friends or something related, whether it's a dog or the place they lived in or some other event in their lives. Uh, well, I, I, we could say that the overall theme is really friendship. 
Okay. Okay. I like that. I think it's good to leave it there because I would encourage anybody who decides to go down the internet rabbit hole into what this might be, don't do it if you're expecting some <laughs> sort of resolution because it's not there. I mean, there have been yeah. books <laughs> yes. written on this and some theories are extraordinarily long and complicated. It's And the other thing to mention for your listeners and people who come to our concert Saturday is this is one time when we would encourage you not to applaud between the variations because you'll notice that some of them have a break in it. Mm-hmm. But he wrote this as a series of pieces. So the whole mood is going to be interwoven, and some of them even go one right into the other. So it, concert etiquette says you're not supposed to plot between movements, but some people do. It's okay. Radu's not going to kick them out. But, okay. in this, but in this piece, <laughs> it would be really good if everyone could sit quietly through the whole series of variations. Okay. And, and I, I would like to add to that because it, it's true. The etiquette is not to clap between movements, but many times there's the ending of a movement. Oh, I, can't help I can it. think of Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. When the first movement oh. is done, I truly think it almost deserves that applause. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, sit on your hands. I'm always, when people applaud, it's not something that I, I will ever in my life react negatively to because it's such a wonderful thing. It just means that they really yeah. enjoyed something about it and something made them emotional enough that they wanted to applaud. And that's really the purpose. That's the whole of, point of music, right? Of music. But in this case, in some places, uh, Elgar even connects the variations. You get a set of two or three variations that are fully connected. And you know, it's part of the challenge for the conductor in a set of variations to think how much time, how are you going to connect from one to the next mm. in a way that makes uh, sense. For, for everything to musically work work out. So in this case, it makes almost a little more sense uh, not to clap until the, the very, very end. All right, all right. Well, let, let's jump ahead to uh, the next performance in our, our Masterwork series, Night at the Opera. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before, but for you know the uninitiated when it comes to opera or even classical music, um, Radu, you've said that this could be like the great first date with the symphony for somebody. <laughs> I love that. That's a great uh, I love that title. Yeah. yeah, great first date. Yeah, we've got some wonderful arias lined up. And, of course, we're working with Opera Naples uh, with the uh, talented uh, singers that will be coming. And uh, two performances, actually, one at the Barbara B. Mann and another one on Sunday down at Cambia Park in Naples. And, Robert, will this kind of mark your debut oh, on the I stage? Have, I have been working on this for weeks. I'm, lo- I'm going to be the narrator, which gave me a, a blank slate uh, to, to come up with the introductions for each one of these arias. And it's not, you know, droning on about the opera itself, but a couple of little pieces of interest because they'll be sung correct me if I'm wrong, but in the language they were written in, right? Okay, so there won't there'll be an Italian and French and German and all that. So I'm setting up the stage for each piece by just giving folks a little bit of an intro and uh, it's been fascinating and fun to figure that out. All right. And then just, uh, that's April 1st, a few right. weeks later, April 22nd. Um, we have, uh, I think it's the, the fourth and perhaps final installment of the Masterworks series. Yep. This is featuring Ying Li performing Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2, and that's in partnership with the Grand Piano Series. Um, what do you want us to know about this concert? Oh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful repertoire once again. I, I think it's... Uh, you can think a little bit. There's a little bit of a connection there because we're starting with uh, Jennifer Higdon uh, Blue Cathedral, which, as the title suggests, it has a a visual element to it. And then on the second half, we have uh, Mussorgsky in the Ravel orchestration of pictures at an exhibition. And the whole idea about that piece is that uh, there is a promenade, which really means you're walking around the museum, and it's the famous trumpet solo that you hear in the in the opening. And then you stop in front 
of a painting and you observe what's in the painting and that's one movement. And then the promenade comes back, we walk a little bit more, then we stop in front of another painting. So it's really a musical representation of a, of a day at the, at the, at the museum. And uh, Jennifer Higdon, once again, a wonderful uh, American composer, she was composer in residence for a long time with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. They had some wonderful, wonderful collaborations. It's an, it's it's a very, very, very beautiful piece where uh, you may hear sounds that you're not, perhaps you have not quite heard in the concert hall yet. But there's something about the the clarity of the harmony, uh, the transparency. Of, of it and it's just sheer beauty. It's very, very, very beautiful piece. And of course, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. It's another one of the war horses of the repertoire. Ingli is a very, very, very talented young uh, pianist, and we're so happy to collaborate with the Grand Piano series and just bring one of these uh, masterpieces to life. And I love this uh, this idea of introducing a young soloist to the audience uh, as well in in terms of also giving them this uh, this wonderful uh, opportunity and she's just absolutely wonderful excellent excellent and uh, Southwest Florida Symphony has long made an effort to delve you know not just into providing performances of contemporary works but cross genre works as well um, you're going to be closing out the season with an exemplary example of this. Robert's hands are raised. I'm just going to let you take the mic. Oh, gosh, I listened to this music all through the 70s when I was in that time. And uh, it's going to be our final Pops concert, uh, May 6th and 7th, uh, the Barbara B. Mann and also up in Charlotte County at CPAC. Uh, it's the music of ELO. The former members of the band, Electric Light Orchestra, are actually still playing. And they're going to be there uh, doing the music. So, um, you know. Dun, 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 dun. It's very orchestral and rock and roll at the same time. It's going to be a great pops concert. All right. So this and, and, and much like, you know, the night at this, um, excuse me, the night at the opera. And, uh, you know, as we'd seen earlier in the season, the Elton John tribute, are these kind of all ways to, you know, kind of make it fun, but also bring in new audiences? Well, I... I think it's it's also what we see as as our mission with the Southwest Florida Symphony because there are already people out there who who love classical music and know how great it is, and there are people that once they hear a piece of classical music they want to hear more, and there are people that have not been exposed uh, to it quite yet, and I think it's our responsibility to make the music available to everybody out there, and I especially with some of the performances you you mentioned with the night and the opera, but. Uh, I really, if if you've ever wanted to go to a concert, but you've hesitated because you thought there's a certain etiquette or anything that comes with it, perhaps uh, the night of the opera concert is the best introduction to to a concert. But furthermore, I would I would encourage you to come to 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 any concert because if you're sitting in uh, in the audience, you've never heard a piece of classical music before, but if it speaks to you in any shape or form, it means you are already getting it. Well said. Well said. Well, and we'd be remiss to not once again mention the student rush ticket option. Robert, remind our listeners how this works. Thanks, John. Yeah, this is a great program. Thanks to our sponsors and donors at the Symphony. We can offer tickets at a great discount to students. Uh, One hour before the concert, all you have to do is show up with your student ID, and that could be an ID from any college, university, trade school, whatever. Just, I need a student ID. Come to the box office, and you can get in for five bucks, and we'll put you in one of the best seats we've still got left. So, 
it's called Student Rush. Ask for it at the box office. Bring your ID, and you can get to a concert for $5. Great opportunity for students on a budget. Well, that is uh, all the time we have for today's show, but I want to thank my guests. We've been speaking with Robert Van Winkle, Community Outreach Ambassador for the Southwest Florida Symphony, as well as our maestro and music and artistic director, Radu Papanyu. And again, they're speaking with us today ahead of the uh, Saturday night performance, March 11th at 7.30 at the Barbara B. Mann Performing Arts Hall. And this is a concert featuring Cuban-American cellist Thomas Mesa performing Dvorak's Cello Concerto in B minor. For more information or to secure your tickets, visit swflso.org, that's Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra, or call the box office, 239-418-1500. Robert Radu, so great to speak with you again. Thanks for coming in studio. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, John. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.